This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put it into my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaign's church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend Christopher Butler. All right, psych, I'm kidding. Chris is not here. It's just me, Justin Gibney. But I have invited some of my friends. So this is going to be a special episode that we're teaming up with the Jude 3 Project. That's right, the Jude 3 Project and some of the folks who are on the Ann Campaign's Leadership Council to talk about something that's very important to me. Y'all may not know, but the Ann Campaign has been working on a docu-series. We've been working on a docu-series called uh, How I Got Over. And it's really about the role that a high view of scripture, a high Christology, you know, belief in the authority of scripture, uh, the, the role of orth- the role, role orthodoxy played in the black church. All right. We want people to know that in the establishment of the black church and the social action in the music, uh, in the schoolhouse, you know, the education and all those things, orthodoxy was very important uh, to the black church. So this docuseries is coming out again. I'm really excited about it. I think y'all are going to love it. Uh, it premieres on April 13th. So mark your calendars. Get ready, because this is going to be a very interesting uh, back and forth, I think, that's going to occur once this comes out. Now, I told you that I got got some friends with me, so I want to introduce my friends. Many of you have heard of them. Uh, You know that we work with them all the time. Very close friends. Uh, First, we're going to start with evangelist uh, Lisa Fields. Lisa Fields (laughs) is the founder of the Jude 3 Project, which is about apologetics. Lisa, just tell us a little bit about yourself and about Jude 3. Uh, and we'll go from there. Yeah. Uh, originally from Jacksonville, Florida, one of the greatest cities in the world, way better than Atlanta. <laughs> um, <laughs> now I reside in Washington, D.C., been leading uh, the G3 project since 2014. Um, Christian apologetics organization helping black um, Christians specifically know what they believe and why. And we also do a lot of work engaging skeptics. And you can find out more information about that at G3project.org. Exactly. And tell us real quick about the documentary that you had come out not too long ago, uh, late last year. Yeah. So on Juneteenth, we released a a documentary called Unspoken that responds to the claim that Christianity is a white man's religion. Um, It features uh, Lecrae, Jackie Hill Perry, Esau McCauley, Vince Montu, and many others. And it's available on Amazon Prime. That's great. Now, I, I forgot to mention Lisa. Lisa is actually in our documentary, How I Got Over as well. So is CJ Rhodes, who we're about to talk to in a second. And there's some relation between the, her documentary, which is excellent. If you have not seen Unspoken yet, you need to go on Amazon and order it immediately. 
when you hear about the history of Christianity in Africa, it is going to blow your mind. Now, I'm somebody who reads a lot uh, about church history, about Christian history. And I still didn't know. I felt like half of the stuff that they exposed in this very well done documentary. So uh, make sure you go see that. And just like that documentary, we have some big names too. Esau McCauley's in both of them. We got Dr. Barbara William Skinner, Dr. Cynthia Hale, Bishop Claude Alexander, uh, Preston Perry, uh, a lot of folks like that. But also one of the one of basically the, the narrator of, of the whole thing is our dear friend, Dr. C.J. Rhodes. Doctor, will you please introduce yourself and uh, uh, tell us a little bit about what you got going on as well? Sure, sure. It's an honor to be here with you both. Uh, C.J. Rhodes, hailing for, from the better of the Jacksons, uh, not Jacksonville, but Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, <laughs> pastor of Mount Helm Baptist Church, which is the oldest historically black congregation in the city of Jackson. Also serve as chaplain at Alcorn State University. That's what, uh, as, like I said before, we've done a lot of work with these folks. These these are our, our partners in crime, so to speak, or partners in theology and and discipleship. So we really appreciate uh, all that they do. Uh, both of them are real heavy men. And so this is going to be a good conversation. As you both already know, you like I said before, you participated in how I got over this docuseries that we did. Uh, number one, we're, we're coming up. Black History Month is coming up. And I think it's always important for the AND campaign to add into that historical education. Uh, I've been surprised just going around the country, speaking to Christians, how bad an understanding, our understanding of history is sometimes. Like we assume that people know history. They just don't care. But in many cases, I found that folks don't know history. They don't know the history of race. They don't know the history of black church. They don't know the history of Christianity in Africa. And that's even many black people. Um, so we always find that it's really important to kind of contribute to, to that conversation. And black church history is American history, too. It's something that everybody I think this is going to be a docuseries that everybody can get something out of because it's it's giving you the facts of history. And we tried to, our best to be objective, uh, to, to really come and, and talk to some experts about this as well. So I think it's going to be really interesting. I think people are going to like it. We know that there was already a documentary that, that's somewhat similar. PBS had a, a black church documentary that came out, I guess, maybe two, three years ago now, uh, if not more. Um, and I thought there was some insightful stuff in there. I thought, you know, in part, it did a good job of giving us the history of denominations and things of that nature. It was mentioned to me from some black Catholics that they were left out. Uh, but, it, you know, sometimes it's hard to cover everybody. But I thought in, in, for the most part that it, it did a good job. There were some things missing, though, too. Uh, and I think a lot of more orthodox black Christians, which Esau Macaulay would, would call the, the primary stream of the black ecclesial tradition. Right. We're not a monolith. So it's in, important to note that black people have different theologies and even within the black church. But that primary stream of the black ecclesial tradition, a lot of folks that are that are still in that tradition, which I think is still the majority of black Christians, felt like there was some kind of progressive lean to that to that conversation. So what I want to ask you to starting with Lisa, what did you like about the PBS documentary and what do you think could have been improved? Yeah, so I liked I think I liked the store the the first part of it I felt like was really strong. I loved how they covered uh, talked about how some people that came over from the transatlantic slave trade were already Christians, which I think is um a fact that many people don't know. And I love, they talked about the rich history of Christianity amongst the slaves. And 
Um, I thought that was vital. It feeds along with the work that we do with the Jew 3 Project. What I thought was missed is a robust understanding of Black Christian denominations, like Mm -hmm. Church of God in Christ, um, National Baptist Convention. And I wish more had been highlighted on the work that they've done in the communities. Um, And then at the end, it kind of took a weird left turn um, that I didn't quite understand as it relates to um, the the emphasis on the mishandlings of the Black church as it relates to sexuality. Now, I want to say that the church has done um, not the best job in moments as it relates to sexuality. So I'm, I'm not saying that that is not a, a helpful <laughs> critique. I think it's important critique, but I think it just wasn't a the, the way in which they painted the future of the black church, I don't think it's consistent with the majority of the black church. And so um, those would be some of my critiques. Okay. CJ, what are your thoughts? Yeah, much like Lisa, I think that the first half was uh, a very important contribution to the dialogue around the black church. So many people, as you noted, uh, Justin, are in many ways ignorant uh, to the history of, of race in America, but also the institutional history of, of black denominations and the fact that so much of what has happened positively from and for black people came largely from black congregations. Uh, you think about various social justice movements, freedom movements, uh, had there not been a black church, we may not have seen as much of a robust uh, uh, kind of contribution uh, to the freedom struggle. Uh, as Lisa also pointed out, there were some gaps in the storytelling around black denominations. Uh, not only were black Catholics not included, which is actually a, a kind of scholarly debate about whether or not uh, Catholics are included in the definition of black church, but the CMEs are, right? The Christian Methodist Episcopalians are uh, historically part of the black church uh, tradition in a lot of scholarship, and they were not included uh, in the documentary. Uh, being a part of the National Baptist and also someone who pastors the church where the Church of God in Christ kind of got his, his start, I was disappointed in in sort of the frailty in how they told the origin story of the Church of God in Christ and many aspects of the National Baptist, which those two, NBC USA and Kojic, are the two largest uh, Black denominations or have been historically. And the third would be the AME, uh, African Methodist Episcopal tradition. The other thing that's interesting, and I, I can appreciate this because of who the folks were, right? The scholars who were engaged in the research were much more kind of progressive leaning scholars, hypercritical of the black church. Uh, but in their telling of the black church story in what was kind of deemed as just reporting the facts, they ignored uh, the lion's share of black Christian uh, history in America, which would be, as, as Esau called it, that dominant black ecclesial tradition. And so many folks in ordinary everyday churches, say in the deep South or the Midwest, would not have really recognized themselves in the documentary. It didn't, it didn't tell their story, which is tragically um, a, a, a void in the scholarship uh, in, in seminaries and uh, higher uh, learning institutions, right? Because most of the scholars either repudiate that tradition or writing about the minority tradition, which is sometimes called the prophetic tradition or the progressive tradition, or the social gospel tradition, 
And so much of the scholarship has ignored um, the, the width and breadth of the black church. And I think that's why this documentary is important to, to fill in that, that void uh, that is not only uh, left by the PBS special, but so much of the books, so many of the books that are written about the black church. Yeah, that's real. And, and, I think all of us, if I'm not mistaken, are, are kind of have roots in uh, black denominations. Right. I know for myself, I come out of the, my family comes out of the Church of Living God, PGT Nation. Uh, what, Lisa, where you what's your um, what's your family's denomination? What do you all come uh, through? It's Kojic adjacent. Kojic adjacent. OK. <laughs> she was born. Fair enough. It doesn't have a name. No. Uh, so my dad's church that he started was non-denominational, but the okay. bishop that we were under uh, came from a Kojic church. Right on. And, and you, and you, CJ? Uh, National Baptist. Yeah. Okay. So here, here's the thing. I mean, you kind of mentioned it, CJ, that they didn't talk to a lot of, or any really orth, Orthodox Christians, right? Who who are coming from that, that primary stream. I mean, I, and you, it, it would be hard to miss those folks, right? If you were really trying to get them, they're not hard to find, but, but we didn't see a lot of conversation there. Um, and so it, it was, the, I think the thing that struck me the most, because the first half was very, very good. And I think I, I like how you guys divided that up because the first half was very, very good. The ending, one of the things that struck me and almost offended me was this idea that in order for the black church to continue to be relevant and survive, we basically have to go and be like the white mainline church. Right. Like we have to become more progressive. Now, that didn't work for them. I don't know why we think that would work for us. But that was the kind of that was a suggestion. Um, where do you guys think this suggestion comes from? I mean, is this based on the divide between the academy and actually the pews? Where do we? Why do you think that became the suggestion coming out of the PBS special, uh, uh, Dr. Rhodes? I mean, I'm sure there are a number of reasons. Um, there is an academic divide. Many of the uh, academics who write on this tend to. Uh, either uh, be allies of the LGBTQIA community, the same gender loving community, or themselves are same gender loving. Uh, you think about the prominence of the Black Lives Matter, uh, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, which was largely led by uh, by lesbian Black women, um, and the sort of stereotype, if you will, that young Black people um, are much more progressive on the sexuality conversation. Um, I, I do think that some of the research, though, thinking to what Dr. Brianna uh, uh, Parker and uh, Barna put out, would suggest that there's some other elements that young people are looking for that aren't really related to the sexuality conversation. As Lisa noted, I think, you know, the, the Black church has taken some L's around the AIDS uh, pandemic or crisis. Um, but the notion that, that, uh, that Black Christians, the Black church has been this virulently homophobic institution trying to tar and feather gay folks, I don't think is born out in the lived experiences of most black churches I've been in, right? Um, black Christians, for instance, were not by and large engaged in a lot of the right wing, more majority uh, attacks, if you will, on, on, on gay rights and those kinds of things. In fact, more black Christians tended to uh, be a little bit more moderating on that, right? We have our theological conviction or biblical convictions. And at the same time, we, you know, we weren't bashing and beating up and demonizing um, gay folks uh, all the time or where, where that happened, right? There were some pastors who said some stuff from pulpits and there were churches that would rah-rah. 
But you also saw the pushback from Orthodox Christians. Hey, there's a better way of addressing, you know, these particular sins and let's not isolate these sins from other sexual sins or any yeah. other sins. And so the narrative is much more complicated on the ground, but the agenda is to basically paint the black church as antiquated, homophobic, and, it, and until it throws away its belief in the Bible, gets rid of Paul, right, uh, and all that stuff, then then we won't survive. And I, I, I don't think right. that is, I don't think that has as much intellectual honesty and integrity uh, as one would think. Lisa? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with uh, CJ on that. I think that divide really is the framing of what folks may be in the academy may want, but not where the majority of people are. And so I always say there's usually a, ga a gap in any, whether you're conservative or progressive, between the cat academy and the church. And oftentimes um, people can write things that are solutions apart from really being connected to the people that are really have the problems on the ground. And so many of folks in the academy are not even connected to black churches any longer. Yeah. And so yeah. they're basing their writings, not on their current immer immersed experience in black churches. It's mm. more childhood experiences um, mixed with other people's experiences that they know and have relationship with that are still in there. Um, but I always want to challenge us that if we're not going to be on the ground doing the work, don't be the loudest voice that that's critiquing um, the people that you're trying to change. Because the critiques you're going to levy are disconnected from the actual people on the ground. And so I think sometimes that's the problem with the gap with the academy and the church. It's like we're people are speaking from a place. Um, of old experiences and maybe hearing new experiences. I mean, people have relationships. I don't want to make it seem like they're completely disconnected. But sometimes um, we're not necessarily on the ground to see what the solution may be. And if we're offering solutions that haven't worked for another demographic of people, like you said, if if the if the solution is to go where the mainline Protestant church has gone, then they have not grown with, there's not a surge of their growth amongst young people. And so yeah. how can that be the solution if it hasn't, like you said, Justin, uh, worked for them? One of the other things that we don't really address is, is sometimes how paternalistic uh, academics can be, be they in the white uh, ivory tower or the ebony tower, right? This notion mm -hmm. that, you know, they're writing from this, elevated elite sort of perspective and you have to, you know, embrace them. Whereas what Lisa bears out is I think people who are actually connected to these institutions who are doing the work are in the trenches. Um, I think are better suited to be able to, first of all, say what's actually happening in, in black churches, but also to, to be solution uh, bearers in, in black churches. And so, you know, one of the questions often comes up in academic spaces is why haven't more black churches ad adopted black theology? And the question is, why haven't more black theologians been in the black church? Mm. Mm. That's a word. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with you. It, it, can comes, it comes off as very elitist. 
right? And and you you see this thing where because we said it, even though it's disconnected from the gospel, even though it's disconnected from the black church, it must be right and y'all need to follow. Now, one of the things that Lisa's unspoken documentary did was push back against the idea that orthodox or push back against the idea that the that Christianity was the white man's religion. What we try to do in this documentary is push back against the idea that orthodoxy is white. In fact, many of us might say that some some parts of white evangelicalism is a distortion of orthodoxy. That's not really even orthodox because it lacks the orthopraxy, which is the right conduct to go along with it. If you're really orthodox, do you do some of the things that the American church did or allowed to happen? Right. And so we and so we have that pushback. But again, in some of these documentaries, in some some of these ac- academic spaces, you get this push that the future of blackness is progressive. It's automatic. And, and for us, we're pretty, I mean, ideologically, as far as I know, we're all pretty moderate. And I don't think any of us are starch conservatives. Uh, we have a high view of scripture. We, we're orthodox. But ideologically, we don't necessarily connect with with the right all that well either. And so you, 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 this push is very interesting to me because there's almost some revisionist history here, right? Where, where we go and we say, you know, black people, it's the obvious choice. And they were always moving in that direction towards kind of this this secular progressivism. And one thing that stuck out to me when we talk about this kind of push uh, to, to the left is something that happened a couple of years ago. I don't know if y'all heard about this, but the Smithsonian uh, National Museum of African-American History and Culture posted something. It was like a chart right when it opened up that got pushed back and they ended, ended up having to take it down. But it was talking about whiteness and how whiteness was defined and what things were white as opposed to being black. Let me let me give you some of this list that they had on here of what was whiteness, part of, meaning part of white culture, uh, part of the, a norm that wasn't a norm for other people, specifically black people. It says right here, monotheism is whiteness. This was on the chart in the museum, in the museum. <laughs> the family structure is whiteness. The idea that hard work is the key to success whiteness. Respect for authority is whiteness. Planning for the future, whiteness. Following a rigid timetable, whiteness. Now, both of y'all were on time for this podcast, but I don't know what that says about y'all. Y'all might need to look back in the mirror. (laughs) Being polite, whiteness. And rational thinking, whiteness. This is one of those things to me, guys, that I, I just ask, I don't I don't know who raised y'all. Like who raised y'all to think that it was white to be on time, to be monotheistic, to believe in the Bible, to believe in the, the family structure? Who made this who made this list and where do they get this stuff from? Lisa, help me out here, man. I I don't get it. I always say that when bitterness takes root in your heart, truth gets distorted in your mind. Mm-hmm. And I think that people just are dealing with a lot of different traumas that they have yet to process. So everything they overcorrect and they want when you overcorrect, you try to you sometimes think everything that was a part of an infrastructure or your life before was wrong and you need to recreate everything. So if you felt like you were in an environment that hurt you. In that environment, there was monotheism. We went to church. I had authority 
uh, that I didn't like or that was abusive, then you tend to think that everything that happened in that space where you experienced that hurt is problematic and you need to redo everything. Proper correction from a healed space would be going to the spaces where you've been hurt and analyzing, being able to differentiate what was good and bad in those spaces. Every place that hurts you isn't completely bad. It has some bad elements, but it doesn't make everything bad. And that's what I see with this age of deconstruction and trying to label everything as whiteness. It is really a overcorrection that comes from a hurt place instead of actual correction that comes from a healed space. Man, that that is wisdom. CJ, let me ask you, if you would have went up to your grandma, grandmother and said, respect for authority is whiteness, what would she have said to you? My grandma probably would have picked up a slipper and, <laughs> and threw it at me because <laughs> uh, they believed in corporal punishment back in the day. Uh, but, you know, in addition to what Lisa said, I think um, bad scholarship also lends itself to, to that kind of line of argumentation. Even beyond Christianity, if you look at the history of, of Kemet or Egypt, I mean, there's the emergence of monotheism there uh, in that context. Um, are we to say that uh, Muhammad and the Arab people were white because they believed in, you know, one God or the Hebrew people were white because they believed in, in one God? Um, and then of course there are varieties of expressions of family structures, et cetera, in the African continent among various nations of people. And so this sort of, you know, in, the irony about it is they actually are taking, in, if you will, white scholarship that's revisionist about African mm-hmm. history and then remapping mm-hmm. it upon modern day black folk and saying, mm-hmm. uh, these things are white using white people's rationality about these things, right? You know, it's amazing. That's the irony, right? Theology, you know, it's like, you know, mm-hmm. you're anti-certain white folks because you're actually taking these other white folks' ideas in terms of the Enlightenment and, and postmodernism. You know, you're taking Michel Foucault or or whoever, and you're saying this is what it means to be black or Christian, but you're using white people. Those are white people's theories too. They're just not the white people that you don't like. And, and so we've got to be a little more thoughtful and reflective um, I don't think, for instance, from the list you, you mentioned, um, uh, that that the black church I grew up in would have seen any of those, any of those things as bad, right? right? Black black Christianity and the black community in the Deep South, uh, even uh, West Africans today. You know, I talked earlier about being an Alcorn. We have West African students who come over here, and they do all the things that you just mentioned as white. And that's how they're, exactly. you know, sometimes yeah. looking at my, my American black suit, like, yo, like, y'all better hurry up because they coming for you. They're on time. Yeah. They're studious, et cetera. So uh, I wonder if if us buying into that into that narrative is actually more harmful. Right. Mm-hmm. Because we're telling young people, you know, be dismissive of any kind of structure in life. And then they go into experiences that wound and harm them. And then we have to go back and say, you know what? Maybe we were wrong. Maybe you do need structure. Maybe you do need these things in place. Um, so it's just very intriguing, you know, how whiteness becomes the boogeyman that if you put whiteness on it, then we'll just dismiss it carte blanche. And we all know that we that an idea coming from a white person doesn't make it wrong. I think what we're pointing out is how a lot of the, the folks that like to play blacker than thou 
are actually getting a lot of their de- a lot of the, our ideas are rooted in this Western European enlightenment. Right. The crazy thing about that list, though, that you're putting on black people is that it centers whiteness. So what you're saying, you have a lot of people forming their identities on being the opposite of what they think whiteness is, which in the same way just centers centers the whiteness that you're talking about, uh, which is, you know, which is which is bad altogether. I mean, th- there may be attributes that any culture has that another culture may need to may find some wisdom in. You're right. That's, that's just a bad way of thinking. And it's unfortunate that, you know, a lot of folks are feeding into it. We got to be about what's do- doing what's right. But at least be, you know, at least if we're going to disagree on what characteristics we should have, let's at least make it historical. Right. Let's let's not uh, kind of revise history and, and add in there what we want. Are you too progressive for conservatives? And too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The And Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. Well, let's move on a little bit and, and get and get back into this particular documentary. Let me ask you this. In, in both of your portions of the documentary, what do you hope that people pull from this? Somebody watching it. What, what do you hope within your contribution that people pull from this documentary? Uh, Dr. Rhodes. I'm sure, there are many things, but one of the first things that comes to mind is I, I want, you know, the average black Christian to see himself or herself uh, as valuable, as validated in this. Right. Um, watching the PBS special and seeing the absence of, you know, millions of people represented. Um, hopefully this documentary becomes a corrective to that. Um, that's number one. Number two, I think um, <clears throat> I want our people to be more proud, not in an ungodly way, but more proud about the tradition for which we've come and, and to preserve and protect that tradition, even as we rightfully critique it. I mean, I think it has, errors and things that need to be addressed. Um, sure. But I think there, there's more good there than bad. And I hope that that those viewing this documentary docuseries will, will come away from this saying there's such a rich tradition here that we've got to sustain for future generations. And that's one of the things we tried to do, CJ. And you, you know this. Uh, we didn't want to present a romanticized view of the black church either. Right. So we're saying one was kind of hypercritical. We didn't come in here saying we want you to think the black church was perfect. We we ish, we had a critique. We saw things that were wrong that needed to be changed. It wasn't the 
uh, the Bible, you know, that, that need to be pulled pulled away. But there were some other things that we thought need to be changed. And we wanted to be as honest as possible about that. And I think people appreciate it. Uh, Lisa, what do you think, you know, what, in, in your opinion, what would be the best thing for people to pull from this uh, documentary? I think one, just the rich history and the contributions of black churches. There's a narrative in our culture by people like Dr. Umar Johnson and others that the black church has just ripped from the community. They haven't helped the community. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's one aspect. And I also think, you know, I want black people to know that the Bible is liberative, liberative from any oppression that they may find themselves in. And I'm not just talking about the oppression that we experience in this world because of, you know, oppressors, but I'm talking about liberative also from the sin that oppresses us as well. And I think because people try to draw these, try to levy these critiques at the Bible, we shouldn't trust uh, Paul's 13 letters, uh, that is white supremacist, that uh, orthodox way of looking at the Bible is harmful to us. I think we rob ourselves from the uh, liberative work that God has given us through his word. And we cannot be completely free uh, unless we immerse ourselves in the word and do what it says Mm. and take the whole counsel of God. And so I hope that people walk away knowing that they could trust God's word. And it is not a tool of oppression, but a tool of liberation. Man, that's a that's a mic drop right there. Both of y'all did an excellent job. And, and I, I'm with you on that, Lisa. Um, one of the main things that I wanted to get across here was that it wasn't just the symbolism of the Bible. It wasn't just uh, Jesus, the historical Jesus that that we pulled, you know, that got us through. It was a true belief in the promises of the Bible that got black people through the hardest moments of our history. Right. Like uh, Eugene uh, Genovese is a historian who was an atheist and also a Marxist. He said he's basically forced to say that it was faith that literally helped black people survive slavery. Because it, it, it prevented their complete dehumanization. It wasn't just again, it wasn't just some symbolism. It wasn't just some words that feel good and we can kind of follow or follow or not. No, it's that promise that wasn't just materialistic. It's that supernatural promise that they depended on. And I know from all of our, you know, all of us, our conversations with our, our grandparents, our elders and things like that. If you speak to them, you know, it was a true belief in those promises. It wasn't progressivism. You know, it wasn't the tenets of progressivism. It wasn't the tenets of conservatism. It was a belief in the promises that God had given us that got us through. And if if folks don't get anything from this, get that. Now, you can decide that you want to go into a different direction than the elders did, than the folks that survived that. But I think historically speaking, we should know that primarily that's where black Christians were at. Anything to add to that, uh, uh, Dr. Rose? Well, yes and amen. I mean, I think I think both of you are spot on. If you look at the so-called black folk tradition, meaning those who were not seminary trained, um, as well as those who were seminary trained, there there was for a large population a deep commitment to the authority 
um, of scripture to the belief that God spoke uh, to us through through that written word. Um, you know, most church historians, black church historians will say that there was a radical identification with the story of Exodus and, mm-hmm. and not just a kind of symbolism, but a real like if God, you know, look, go back to listen to the spirituals. If God did it for Daniel, why not every man? If God delivered Israel out of Egypt, why not deliver us? And uh, and so there was a deep abiding faith that wasn't just a kind of symbolism or kind of pragmatism. I think our ancestors, uh, not just way back in enslavement, but in the 60s, I mean, people that I pastor now who talk about how they got over in the midst of Mississippi segregation. And it was a deep abiding faith in God and um, and, and, and the power of prayer, power of of worship. Um, and, and the belief that, that Jesus had some radical identity with uh, those who were oppressed, but also, as Lisa noted, um, a lot of our preachments were not just about what was happening out there in terms of the evils of white supremacy, um, but how do we make sure we keep our families mm-hmm. together? And how do we make sure we overcome alcoholism in our communities? I remember uh, just this little uh, story, reading uh, for my uh, doctoral research, um, some of the presidential addresses of the first president of the uh, state convention of, of, of Baptist in Mississippi. And they were talking about racism and how the church needed to be strong. And then uh, uh, Henry uh, Jacobs, who was the first president, would begin to talk about, now let's talk about these clergy who are committing adultery and who are alcoholics. Let's figure out a way to keep them from pastoring our churches. So this notion that it can't be both and, right? I mean, our this is the, you know, founding president, of, of you will, of, of the Black Baptist Convention, having a both and approach to say there's the oppressive uh, sin of white supremacy, but the oppressive sin of, of quote unquote, personal sin. Um, mm-hmm. And to to try to bifurcate that and to say, well, we should only be concerned about what's happening in terms of politics, in terms right. of policy, does it injustice to the very heritage and history that their black churches are built upon? Yeah, there wasn't only a concern with material things, right? Um, and there there was an understanding that our moral compass needed to be there in, in other places too for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, you can hear it in the in the songs, right? I mean, the songs is a great place to go for that type of, of theology. It was never just about that. Those things were important. The policy and all that were important, but it was never just about that. Um, and, and so that is that's really important because you couldn't necessarily control the policy. You had more control over what you did and keeping yourself out of that that type of bondage uh, w- with your faithfulness and all that. One thing that you pointed out, uh, Lisa, which I thought was really good, too, was the contribution of the black church, because we get beat up on that. You ask people, man, they don't do nothing, blah, blah, blah. One thing I've always noticed, though, and I guess I can appreciate to some extent is there's always a high expectation. And folks may not think we reach it. But there's always from somewhere, there's always this expectation that the church will do or should do, you know, all these things. And that expectation isn't on all religions or other institutions. There's always this expectation. But if you look throughout history, there would be no black education institution, educational institutions without the black church. And we we get into this in the schoolhouse episode. But the church did so much to educate our people I mean, you you have to read through that history. You have to look at that before you start, you know, to 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 kind of uh, pass judgment. But it, I do want to talk about because I think this episode is going to be the one that people really uh, get engaged in and really appreciate. They're all very good, but that schoolhouse episode, 
both both of you guys are in that episode. That schoolhouse episode, I think, is going to be special. Lisa, give me some of your thoughts on the schoolhouse episode and why you think people might be intrigued by it. Yeah, I think it just shows contributions of Black people in the academy and a rich understanding of how we shape Christian doctrine and how we live that out. Um, I think that's going to really be helpful. And I think it shows also a balance. I know in the part in some of the things I wanted to contribute is a balanced understanding of how we got to understand faith from a black perspective and how we a proper we had a proper understanding of orthodoxy and orthopraxy in our education and and how people also struggled with seminaries at, at a time because they felt like people were going there and losing uh their faith. Uh seminary uh was called cemetery by some. Uh, mm-hmm. Because they saw people going off and not and losing their hope and losing their trust and losing their faith in the text and how that happened over time. Um, and so I, I think it presents a balance that gives uh, the helpful contributions and also criticisms also to to the academy um, in which we still have to navigate through today. Yeah. And what was interesting to me and we were talking, I mean, we had Vince Band too again, Esau McCauley. Uh, Amos Jones, I mean, just brilliant minds speaking into this conversation. And from those those voices, what we heard was a critique of conservative cemetery. Uh, cemetery. You got me saying some, a critique <laughs> of conservative seminaries. Right. Exactly. A critique of conservative seminaries and a critique of progressive seminaries where there's kind of this assumption in some spaces against. I think it's a, a, a very elitist assumption. That if you're not progressive, you must not be educated. If you're not progressive, you must not. You just must not have been exposed to the right things. This documentary, I think, dismantles that mis- uh, that misconception. Any thoughts just yourself, Dr. Rhodes, on, on this Schoolhouse episode and why people might find it interesting? Yeah, I think in addition to what Lisa bore out about the, the seminary uh, piece and, uh, you know, depending on what denomination you're in, it was either required or not required for numbers of reasons. Uh, but I think uh, the quote unquote secular education part and, and the role the black church played in the establishment of what we now know as HBCUs uh, <clears throat> and uh, even, you know, K-12 education when it wasn't called K-12. Um, you know, one of the things I'm very proud about is is making sure we hold up the banner of Hiram Rhodes Revels and, and his commitment. He wasn't just the first black U.S. senator. He gave up that post to be the first president of all corn state university. And, wow. and, and what's in the backdrop of that is he was an AME preacher, right? He was a pastor. So what we talked about earlier about faith and how faith motivates faith motivated, not only his political career, but also his, his leadership of a, of, of a burgeoning institution of higher learning. And if you look at the role of the black church then and now, played in making sure black folk got educated, right? Going into their park pockets and having cooperative economics and make sure that folks like us could go to school when we didn't have scholarships, when we didn't get grants, when we didn't get FAFSA, all that stuff. So um, then and now, I think the black church played and plays a very significant role in education. Because I think for a very long time, 
we we often thought of education as the second part of our liberation. There's this spiritual, biblical-based liberation that happens through one's relationship with the Lord, and then get some learning, get some education, and that could take you further. And I think um, you know this episode speaks to how how the black church is very very central in making sure we have that. Had there not been a black church, we may not have had the educational gains we had even in the times of, of segregation. Can Man. I can I add something to that, Justin? Please, please do. Yeah, and I wish I had remembered this when we were recording, but I just think about my own experience. I went to a Church of God in Christ a private school for elementary school. And from the time I was four till third grade, it was a very accelerated learning program. But I just remember that experience is like an all black school. We were ahead of the curve in third grade. We were learning algebra. We learned how to read before my peers in public school. But we also, one of the largest bishops in the in, in the Church of God in Christ in Florida started the school. And so he also made sure we had morning prayer, devotion, all of those things included with a rigorous curriculum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just think it's unfair to kind of paint this picture that even for us Pentecostals, that we're only concerned about, you know, shouting and dancing and praising God. But no, this uh, Bishop C.D. Kinsey had the vision to to create a K through uh, sixth grade um, school to make sure black kids knew uh, knew their stuff, but also were filled with the spirit. And yeah. so I just think that's I think that just adds to the the history of of us as a black church. It, we're, it's a holistic. Absolutely, and, and and Lisa, I would second that. All three of my sons started off in a black Christian schools. And number one, they knew the Bible. Uh, They got great teaching about black history. And when they went to other schools, they were ahead in reading and things like that. So that's I mean, people don't talk about that. But there are very rigorous schools out there that are are, uh, that are part of uh, black churches. And that's something we need to talk about more and support more. Right. I think that is important. Well, I want to end by saying this, man, you two are brilliant. Uh, I've learned so much, um, so much from you. There was a time in my life where I thought I was alone and trying to be orthodox, but also to address uh, social justice. Uh, and then here comes along so many others that we've all kind of came together and created community. I mean, you guys are folks that I talk to quite often, uh, folks that I know I can depend on. And it was a pleasure uh, doing this documentary with you um, just to see where your hearts are, how you love the the kingdom, how you love the church in general and how you love the black church uh, and are really trying to build and bring people together. Uh, I know I've seen where your hearts are. I've seen what you give, how much time you spend on what you do, the uh, the, the time you spend uh, reading the Bible and praying. And I just want to say y'all are, are inspirations to me. And I look forward to, to God uh, even giving you guys uh, greater platforms and greater things ahead. Uh, so thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your participation. And I just want to come out of this uh, asking you guys, what's next for you? What do you guys have going on? What do you want people to know about uh, that's going on either with your organizations or just your ministries in general, evangelist uh, fields? So uh, we'll start shortly working on a new documentary on 
the trustworthiness of the Bible from a black mm-hmm. perspective that I'm excited about. Hopefully mm-hmm. we'll begin this year. If we get all the, the funding for that. And just the continued work of Jude 3, what we do with the podcast, our events, our conference. And we're right now in a podcast series called Can We Trust the Bible? Um, and I'm, I'm really excited about that. So you can check it out. Can we? Uh, yes, we can. There you go. All right. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, CJ. Yeah, I think one thing uh, I want to point to on the horizon um, in partnership with the Full Gospel Baptist Church Fellowship Young Pastors Division, I'll be hosting monthly or bi-monthly a conversation around charismatic intellectuals, folks like Lisa, right, who, you know, spirit field and engaged in in learning and apologetics, et cetera. And uh, I'm not sure precisely when our first one will drop, but it will be in February uh, and we'll be discussing my book. Uh, deeper steel ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit, taking a look at uh, C.P. Jones and kind of the history of these sort of Baptist costals and and where we are today and how we can retrieve that tradition and, and let it be a blessing to not only the black church, but the, the church in general. Yeah, C.J. does a great job talking about the spirit and the role that the spirit needs to play in everything that we do. So make sure y'all look up that book and go get it deeper still by uh Dr. C.J. Rose. Now, I didn't mention this to Lisa before, but as we know how I got over, most people know it as a song from Mahalia Jackson. And so I wanted to leave this episode with Lisa singing the song, How I Got Over, <laughs> <laughs> to everybody as an outro. Do you mind that, Lisa? Is that is that OK? I'm a horrible singer. I don't even know if anybody wants to hear that. I know I'm messing with you. Well, this is it. This this is the end of uh, another episode of the Church Politics Podcast. It was a special episode that we joined uh, forces with the Jude uh, Three Project. Go check that out. Make sure that you check out this documentary docu series. How I got over. Uh, It's going to be something that I think people are going to really hold on to and learn a lot from. Thank you once again uh, to Lisa Fields and Dr. C.J. Rhodes. We'll see you next time on the Church Politics Podcast. Take care. Dear Lord.